I'm beaten down. I'm just going to be honest about that. Beaten down. Beaten down by the coronavirus. Beaten down by awful news and massive death totals. Beaten down by a president screaming fake news and treating our peers in the media like garbage. I'm tired. I'm uninspired. Just meh. I'm guessing you are too. So here's what we all need to do. Put down the nachos, turn off the Netflix, get in front of your laptop, and write. An article, a blog post, a script. Write about your feelings, your anger, your joys. Just write. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's episode features Callie Kaplan, the Dallas Morning News High School Mavs writer, on what it is to be up and coming in the newspaper world. This is episode number 150. Let's sling some yang. Dad, All right, Callie, first of all, thank you so much for doing this. Happy to do it. I just scared you two minutes ago because I said I I got some info on you. Whenever I do this podcast, I don't always use it, but sometimes I do. I will try to find the oldest thing I can find written by a person. And... Oh no. You are, well, you are a young end. You're 24. So like the, the can't, it's not like I did Dave Kindred recently and I found his wedding announcement for the 1960s. <laughs> and here's two things I found from you that I just freaking love. There was an article in the Baltimore Sun on May 25th, 2001. Jewish congregation looks to make rural tract home with a picture <laughs> of a young Callie Kaplan, age six, with Adam Milstein hauling mightily in a game of tug of war at Cytabration for Temple Isaiah. Do you recall that at all? Um, I cannot say I recall that specifically, but um, I do know that person and my parents will be thrilled to know that this is somewhere on the internet. <laughs> oh, nice. It is. I will happily send it to you later. And then I have um, Great. a couple years later, uh, November 27th, 2013, the Baltimore Sun. You were the <laughs> Ra- Ravens fan of the week. And <laughs> <laughs> you're, you said your favorite Raven was Tori Smith. And if you could invite three Ravens to dinner, there'd be Terrell Suggs, uh, Jacoby Jones, and Joe Flacco. And I feel like if you oh, call wow. Joe Flacco, if you call Joe Flacco right now and said you want to come for dinner, he'd be like, "I'm not doing anything else. Where are we going to eat?" So I, I feel like that can come home. That can happen in modern times. Oh, um, and I would absolutely love it if it does. I'm still a Joe Flacco truther to the day. <laughs> oh, that's funny. A lot of times on this podcast, I get people uh, asking for themselves to be guests, and I almost never. There's something about people requesting to be guests today. Not that anything's wrong with that. Usually I'm like, eh. But there was a, uh, there's a sports writer named Leah Van, and she wrote to me recently, and she said uh, over Twitter, I just listened to your podcast, and although I enjoy hearing from the best and young people making it big time, as a sports writer in my 20s working in a small town newspapers, I always felt I wasn't good enough because I wasn't covering a pro team or a college team out of college. I'm wondering if other reporters in their 20s see people like that and feel the same way. You've interviewed the beat writer from the Nationals, and I remember he was a similar age. And they said, but what about Joe Hoyt from the Dallas Morning News? He covers preps and the state obsessed with preps. And then she said, what about Callie Kaplan, a Mavs beat writer for the Dallas Morning News? Does she have the luxury of playing humble and asking players about their game? Or because she's a woman, is she expected to know more? And I'm actually going to start right oh, there. man. <laughs> because you're a woman, are you expected to know more? Do you think people expect you know less? Is it 2020 and people don't have the same gender expectations that maybe they did 
20 years ago? Oh my gosh, that's a loaded question. <laughs> um, I'll start by saying I think that I expect myself to know more, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm not exactly sure, but I think by not ever seeing anybody that looks like me and, you know, is the same gender, whether it's in the newsroom or whether it's in the field for the Mavericks or for high school football, I kind of want to make sure that I know as much as I can possibly know about whatever I'm talking about, whatever I'm writing about, because I don't want anybody to think that there's a reason to doubt me because I am a woman and because I look different than everybody else that I work with. Um, whether other people think that I'm not exactly sure. I, I do know that like throughout the years, I think I've been more memorable, whether that's good or whether that's bad, you know, coaches and people might figure out who I am sooner and then, you know, expect more of me or doubt that I have what it takes. And then I have to prove myself even more. So I guess I don't even know if I answered your question very well, but I think it all stems back to that. I expect a lot of myself and I know that I don't want my career to just represent my own path. I want it to be able to help open doors for anybody else that it might be able to just in the same that a lot of my mentors have done that for my generation. And so I think I kind of carry that with me, whether I think about that every day or not. If you're covering the Mavs or you're covering, I don't know, whatever, if you're doing a Texas Rangers game, whatever, if you're filling in on a mm -hmm. certain is it still such a sort of environment that you expect to be the only woman reporter or uh, print reporter or online reporter? Or do you feel like nowadays you will be one of whatever, two, three, four, five? Yes. In terms of just the field in Dallas that I work among, whether it's, like I said, Mavericks or high school football or I guess pretty much wherever else I fill in here, I do expect to be the only one. And that's just because... There are so few of us. I know the Cowboys has a little bit more diversity on the beat. Um, and I think that comes with just having a ton more reporters there. But in terms of the Mavericks, there can be sometimes some people from TV, some women in TV in different areas that, you know, jump in and out. But in terms of the people that are there every day, you know, I always say it's like a wonderful day if I get to talk to another woman in person. So whether <laughs> right. it's just it's kind of you know, I don't want to expect it. I wish it were better, but it's something that I can't really let bother me. So you're a, you're the first person I've talked to who covers preps in the state of Texas. There's obviously a mythology with that dating back to Friday Night Lights and probably before that even. Is it a fair representation? What we think of as Texas high school, especially high school football, is we think of uh, over competitiveness, craziness, do whatever it takes to win, kill, 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 doggy dog, blah, 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 blah. I don't know. Is that what you found or is it not quite the animal that we picture? Yes and no. I, I guess I'll start by saying it doesn't quite fit like the mystique of Friday Night Lights kind of vibe, at least in Dallas in the Metroplex, because things don't really shut down on Friday nights. In certain places, they kind of do. And you get more of that small town feel uh, at certain schools. But on the whole, in the Metroplex, you know, things operate as normal. It's just there might be 12,000 people at a football game one night. <laughs> um, right. But in terms of the complete competitiveness, having covered preps and covered uh, high school football in the D.C. area when I was in school and right out of school and then now being in Texas, it is insane how intense it is. And I kind of get like forget that after having been here for two football seasons now. But, you know, coaches that are in high school here, their full-time job is pretty much to coach football. And I don't think that happens anywhere else. And 
whether that's a good thing that they're, you know, specialized and good at what they do or whether that's a bad thing because then things can just run wild. Um, I think it's a mix, but it's definitely very intense, but maybe not so much with the, you know, Hollywood version of everything shutting down in a big city and things like that. It's funny. We were just uh, in my house. We were just, I have two kids and we were just watching the end of the Reese Witherspoon movie, Sweet Home Alabama. And it is such an awful representation of the South where every single human being seems like some yokel with seven teeth and they all speak with this big, big Southern accent like that. And it's like, it's horrifying. And I feel like Texas football, there's a level of cliche to it. And I wonder when you started covering these games, did you have expectations that weren't met or has it been, has the football itself been sort of what you anticipated? When I first moved here, I hadn't watched any of the TV show, movie, book or what, you know, the whole, uh, the whole Friday Night Lights vibe. I had never watched any of that. Um, and so I tried to watch it that first summer, two summers ago when I was here and I just like really didn't like it <laughs> and I couldn't <laughs> get one. on board with it. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, I, like, what have I done? Am I going to hate my job? Like, this is going to be a miserable 17 week season. And luckily it's not quite like that. Um, but the talent level, I don't think is overhyped because, you know, there are, I, you kind of, like I said, you kind of forget about it when you're here because I see it every week. And even the teams that are not the top of the top in the state or in the Dallas area, they just have so much talent. And I forget that, you know, a team from DC came to play a team from Dallas this past year. And it was one I had covered there, one I cover here. And the the best player on the D.C. team, I think he only had like 36 yards receiving. And he ended up being the Washington Post player of the year, was committed to LSU before he signed with Maryland. Like he was a really good player and he, he was just another guy down here. Um, so I think it's instances like that where I realized like, oh, like this, <laughs> this is serious. You sent me one. The headline was like others this season, Duncanville believed it could dethrone Allen. Here's how, unlike any other team, they did just that in state semifinals. And this was uh, December 15th, 2018. And I got to say, this was a freaking perfectly written high school football game story. Like, oh my gosh, nailed it. <laughs> no, so good. Like, really good. And, and I feel like 98% of the time, high school sports stories are either covered, and this is no insult, by young writers who just kind of go very rote or by people who don't really you know some stringer who's in a rush and blah, blah. And this was, it was artistic. And, and your lead was um, the way Duncanville quarterback Jaquindon Jackson split through Allen's defenders on his fourth down, 40-yard touchdown run late in the state semifinal appeared so simple. The junior glided down the field, reached the end zone with about three minutes remaining and hardly celebrated. But the ramifications for Jackson's 44-35 win-clinching run were significant. Because Jackson figured a defender would overshoot the gap and leave him with a clear path to the end zone. And because that happened, allowing him to break the matchup tie at 35, Duncanville ended Allen's winning streak at 30 games and further established its program as one of the state's supreme. And here's what I really freaking loved. is like, yeah, it's the Jackson figured a defender would overshoot the gap and leave him with a clear path to the end zone. Like, I love how you, you took a play. Like, a, a lot of times these high school game stories are just these big, fat overviews, and you get almost nothing out of it. And I kind of like the idea of taking a play, taking a moment, taking an important moment, breaking it down and explaining how it happened. Um, and I wonder, like, what are you trying to do when you 
cover a high school sporting event? What is your goal? We're kind of spoiled at Dallas Morning News because we have live stats for every game that we cover and every game in the Dallas area. We do that as a newspaper. Um, so it's not so much that you have to pay attention to the numbers and the statistics and, oh my gosh, you know, did he have 15 carries or do he have 16 carries and you spend, you know, the next six plays trying to count it out. Um, like you do it pretty much every place, if not every other place. Um, and so when I'm there, you know, anybody can go online and see our live play by play, our live stats. So I don't need to tell them exactly what happened, you know, in the third quarter on this play or, you know, on this drive, you know, I want to know what was he thinking in that moment because it was the, the biggest moment of their season to that point. And, you know, what was the play they had drawn up? What did he see? And just kind of take people, I know it's not, I guess, kind of cliche, but take them where they can't go. And I think it's pretty unique and easy, not easy, that's not the right word, but it's pretty unique and accessible to do that in high school because I can go track down whatever kid I want to after the game and ask him. And he's happy to tell me because he's, you know, under no marching orders to not share his secrets or whatever. Um, so that's kind of the fun part is, you know, everybody saw that happen. But what did he see on that play as we were watching it all unfold is kind of what I wanted to know and, um, you know, tying the context and the significance into that. So you're at, you're at this game and it's uh, it's in front of 27,894 people. And, you know, after the game, you want to talk to Duncanville quarterback to Quindon Jackson. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know how it works in huge high school games in Texas. Like, do you do they bring him to a side area? Do you just run down and get him on the field? Like, how do you even go about that? Yeah, it depends. Um, in that case, it was the last game of the day. They, when they have them at AT&T Stadium, they usually do two or three games back to back so that they can pack as many people, uh, and games and whatnot into a good venue. Um, and so the last game of the day is kind of a free for all. They don't bring them into the interview room for press conferences, uh, right after. So, you know, it just, it's kind of, you can find the star quarterback who just scored the game winner because a bunch of people are gathering around him, but you're kind of at a free for all and get to go walk around, run around and see who you can find and see who you want to talk to. And sometimes the people that are not the most popular are the most interesting. So is it hard or easy to get high school kids to say something interesting? Oh, I think it depends on the kid. Um, I don't think it has as much to do with whether you know them as well. Um, as it would, let's say when I'm covering the Mavs, it helps if, you know, you know, a player and they feel a little more comfortable and they can open up a little bit. But in high school, I would say it, it's more depends on the kid's personality and how comfortable they are talking to a stranger. Like I know when I was 16 or 17, if somebody had just walked up to me, I'd have been like, oh my gosh, and kind of shut down. But a lot of these kids, and I think it comes with having been in Texas, they understand what it's like and they know that when they're being interviewed, it's going to get promoted and be good for them on social media. So I would say it's not, it's not terribly hard for, to get them to open up and say something interesting, but you also have to write, ask the right kind of question. So let's say it's um, the same game, but let's say on the final play, uh, DeQuindon Jackson fumbles on the one yard line and blows it for Duncanville. How do you sort of cover a high school kid who screws up? Yeah, that's the miserable part <laughs> is because they're not college kids and they're not professionals where, you know, they have the the platform where you can kind of criticize them. They are just kids. And for most of them, they won't play beyond high school and you're not going to blast them on the Internet because they, you know, made a bad play or whatever. Um, it's interesting you ask 
about that because the week after in the state championship that year, uh, Duncanville lost on their last second Hail Mary. Um, and so, you know, in those situations, you can't, I mean, you could, but I don't think it's super tasteful to, you know, go up to the kids that missed batting the ball in the end zone and, you know, asking them, why didn't you do that? How did that not happen? I think if you're lucky, you have a team, <laughs> you have a team on both sides in a game. And so, you kind of cover the the winning angle, whether or not that's mm-hmm. always fun to do. Sometimes the best stories are the losses, but I think there's a way to be tasteful about it. And there's also, you can kind of use your instincts to know when you should rely on a coach's quotes more because they are an adult and they are better equipped to handle disappointment um, at that point. So I think it, it kind of depends on the situation. Have you had a coach yet refer to you as honey, sugar, darling, or sort of speak in a way, you know, that, is there's a presumption of you, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, not so much in the, in the way of you don't know what you're talking about, but it's funny you bring that up because people in the newsroom joke about that all the time because it does happen all the time. Um, where I guess, you know, they're not used to dealing with a woman who's reporting on them. And I don't know, I'm young. I, think that I'm friendly, you know, not in in a bad way, but, you know, I, I treat them as people, not as, you know, subjects that I have to cover, you know, so rigidly. And so I do get a lot of like, Hey baby, how's it going? Like, Hey honey, how are you? And they mean it. I want to say in a good way, and maybe I'm apologizing for them, which is another problem, but I think it's more them trying to be nice, but me also being like, okay, you're not going to go call my coworker, you know, lad you're not gonna be like hey lad how's it going so there is just kind of a double standard i don't think it's out of a negative place but it's funny you ask that because it does happen pretty frequently do you think you 10 years from now at 34 handle that differently than you did at this point in your career i think so yeah like some of my mentors like i see christine brennan at the awesome conventions all the time and would see her uh back when i was in the DC area and in college more frequently. And, you know, she would always put an end to it. Even if somebody was being kind that was, you know, waiting on a table or something and like, Oh, sure. Sweetheart or whatever. She's like, no, no, no. Like, don't call me that. And so I always kind of, I've, I've watched her set that example and watched other people set that example. But I don't know, I guess it's kind of hard when you're in the position and you don't really need to spend time correcting somebody when you just, you know, are trying to call them and get some answers about something. I love, in fact, I live for the awkwardness of when someone like a Christine Brennan or Jamel Hill or whoever, a a woman who has been in the field for a long time and just doesn't take any shit. In fact, one of my favorite moments, (laughs) one of my favorite moments in my career, I was with a writer named Howard Bryant, who's with ESPN. And we were at, um, we were at spring training one year and Howard's African-American. We were both covering baseball and we're standing in the concourse of the Cubs stadium. Two people come up to us and they turn to Howard and they go, can you tell us where our seats are and show them their tickets? And he goes, do I look like an usher? And it was one of the <laughs> great moments of like, you know, without him saying you guys are a bunch of assholes, it was one of the best mm-hmm. all time moments. And I, I hope at some point in your career, you get to enjoy the moment of looking at someone and saying, do I look like an usher? Cause it's, a, it's, a, <laughs> it's a great I gotta thing. Earn to be my clout. <laughs> you got to earn your clout. You sent me a story that ran uh, July, 2019 that I thought was freaking Great. And, and one of those stories is really important to write. And it was inside the dirty underbelly of college football's recruiting boom from non-committable offers to non-binding promises. And, um, it was an amazing piece about 
college programs basically offering hundreds of scholarships that they're really never going to fulfill. Um, mm-hmm. Short of as a gimmick and a way to lock in players who they may want, kind of want, and then don't want. And um, I'm just kind of fascinated. How did this piece even come to be? Like, how did this start? Mm-hmm. I think I'm trying to remember the exact origins of it. But when I first got here two summers ago and my only responsibilities was to cover high school sports, I started, I guess you could call it like a summer workout tour of sorts where I would just, we have a Google Doc of coaches' numbers and I would text coaches that I either knew were going to be important to know or that I thought would be good to know from different areas, different school sizes, you know, different levels of success around Dallas. I just text them and ask them if I could come out to a workout, come sit in their office for half an hour, get like introduce myself, get to know them. And I went with kind of a, I guess, a standard list of questions that I would ask just to start conversation and then see where it would go from there. And a bunch of coaches then that summer, just kind of unprompted, would bring up how recruiting was really dirty. And then I would start kind of asking more about that. Well, how so? And they would get into non-committable offers. And I sat with that for, I guess, the whole first season I was here. But I knew going into National Signing Day, that was something that so many people knew in the football world was going on. But I don't think parents know and I don't think kids really understand. And I don't think general readers quite knew exactly what was happening. And so it was kind of cool to be able to take just organic conversation and turn it into something that did get really, I mean, I don't know if I get good feedback from college coaches, but it gets good feedback from people that, you know, are or will be or had been involved and just hadn't kind of had it laid out right in front of them of this is all the things that you might need to worry about and that might happen to you and isn't really cool. I think it's insane. So you were, I mean, According to the this is where you were according to the to the recruiting site Baylor 198 Texas A&M 195 offered the most scholarships in 2019 Texas the fewest 137 none signed more than 23 players during the December early period overall 25 Division one programs offered at least 281 football scholarships uh, in the 2019 recruiting cycle and 10 offered more than 354 so basically they offer them but have no intention. Of fulfilling them, mm-hmm. um, which just strikes me as a really crappy way to teach treat uh, young people who dream of playing college football. Or am I reading into it incorrectly in a way? Oh no, I think you're reading into it correctly. I think there's a little bit of nuance to it because you can't just offer. Let's say you're going to take 25 kids in a class. A college can't just offer 25 scholarships and expect that they, the 25 they offer, will all get accepted and those kids will all go there. So you do have to kind of play a numbers game to it to a degree. But from everybody that I talk to and I see it now that I'm more aware of it, the offer numbers just go up and up and up every year. And then, you know, it's all about timing. It's all about, you know, how they rank you. It's all about visits. And, you know, it becomes this whole game where it's not just you're a talented player. You know, here's where you could go to college. It becomes a you're a talented player. but are you talented enough to go here? Did you decide to go here at the right time? If you don't decide quick enough, you might have 30 offers listed on the recruiting websites, but none of those are committable anymore. And so it's, it's a mess, <laughs> pretty simply. You know what football winds up doing to so many people? And I wonder, is it hard to cover football and not feel like you're watching something sort of gross? At times, yes. I think 
it depends. Uh, having watched, you know, NFL and college and high school, the high school game definitely is slower in that sense. But you stand on the sideline and you watch kids tackle. And sometimes it's not always the best tackling for them, even though they really do stress that in Texas of being educated and being, you know, teaching proper form through coaching. Um, but you see some of those hits and I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, these kids that might not be the hit that, you know, causes issues later down the line. But a lot of these kids do go on to college and, you know, they churn out draft picks from Texas left and right every year. And, you know, you kind of, it's almost, it's something that I know I need to pay attention to as a journalist, but it's also something that if you think about it so constantly, like you can't do the other parts of your job, if that makes sense. So it's something that you want to be on top of, but you know, you kind of have to compartmentalize it to a certain degree. Right. So, so I asked, um, I asked you over DM, like, like you, you do a lot of Mavs, uh, Dallas mm-hmm. Mavericks. You're not the main beat writer. Yeah. I, I said, is it, is it proper to refer you to you as the backup? Um, yes. and, and yeah. And, and I was wondering, what does that entail being sort of the number two Mavs writer? How many games are you going to? How often do you travel? Uh, what's your role? Good question. I think it's kind of nebulous and it's changed throughout the season. Um, and I guess could stand to change in the future. Uh, I go to as many games as I possibly can. And I guess part of my role is that I will cover a good amount of games that will give the, the lead writer, Brad Townsend, a break, uh, whenever, you know, the schedule allows for it and things like that. So like this coming weekend, I'll be the only one on the beat the entire weekend, but then like, they have a game. I'm going to forget the whole schedule now, but they'll go on the road on Tuesday. Then they'll be back. And even if I'm not writing the game stories for the couple of games next week, I'll still be out there working on some playoff stories coming up and just kind of still getting familiar because it was, it was hard to be out there constantly in the fall when I was doing uh, football at the same time. But in terms of travel, I went to a couple of games uh, last month on the road went to all-star weekend uh, playoffs is coming up. So there's a mix of it. And I think, like I said, it could stand to change in the future. Um, but for now it's a, it's a mix. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Is it, is it, does it feel at this point, even though he's only in his second year, is it a Luca centered world? Like is covering the Mavericks. Oh yes. <laughs> it is. <laughs> oh, so by far. That, yeah. What does that mean? I think it can be good and it can be bad, obviously good because he is incredible at basketball and does a lot of things on the court that are, you know, good to write about and people love to read about. And you see that in the metrics, um, you know, when you write about Luca and Chris Porzingis usually falls into that category too, versus when you write about other players that don't steal local and national headlines so often. Um, but it can be hard because there's only so many ways to write, Luca is really young and had another triple double and he's really great (laughs) at basketball. So (laughs) you have to be creative with it and, you know, find pick spots to know that, okay, Luca might've had a really, really good game tonight, but is that the full story and how can you kind of work that into another storyline to make sure that it's, you know, not just, I think our editor in chief in the, in a meeting recently was saying, Everybody says our newspaper is the same, you know, this bad news, this bad news, and Luga had another triple-double. So I think it requires some creativity when someone's so consistently good um, to know that he has this whole career ahead of him and you have to find different ways to write about him. Well, it's kind of interesting because let's say you're covering the Mavericks and Lucas, whatever, scores 30 and has 11 and, mm-hmm. and 
Tim Hardaway Jr. hits a key three-pointer with four minutes left in the fourth, blah, 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 blah. Because we, we want diverse stories and diverse narratives, is it okay to base the story around Tim Hardaway Jr., who may finish with 12 points, but he hit a, a big shot. Meanwhile, Luca had another huge game. Like, are you allowed to, in a way, determine what the storyline is just because you have the keyboard in front of you? I think to a degree, yes. Because if you focus on, you know, Hardaway or whoever it is that steps up, and I think that's happened a lot with Kristaps Porzingis recently, who's at the same time as Luca having these incredible games, has been, you know, kind of forming these own storylines around himself at the same time. I think <laughs> not that everything's dictated by metrics, but in some way you want to make sure that Luca is represented because that's who casual people want to read. But like you said, you know, people that follow the team consistently, not as reporters, but just as fans who are loyal readers and loyal followers, they want the full story too. And you have to kind of remember that and be able to balance that with, okay, you can go in depth on this one part that doesn't have Luca, but maybe for your next story, the next day, it will look at more of a trend of Luca, including what he did the night before, if that makes sense. So you're yeah, going to have to yeah. massage it and almost cater to two different audiences, which is the Luca casual audience. And then the Mavs audience, which includes Luca, but it includes 14 other guys too. Right. You did a story the other day about, it was called the evolution of Tim Hardaway Jr. Uh, mm. From trade throw in to a culture guy and leader of the, for the Mavericks. It's funny. A lot of people I know who write about the NBA now say it's a lot different from 10 years ago that it's a lot harder to get people one-on-one. It's a lot harder to get time. You have to go through agents a lot of time instead of just going through a PR guy, blah, 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 blah. If you from the Dallas Morning News want to do a piece on Tim Hardaway Jr., is it easy or is it difficult? Well, I guess it depends. Uh, in that, in the case of that story, it was he had had a sequence of really good games and it had come at a time when Luca had been hurt. And so the stuff that I gathered off of that was, I guess, a mix of analysis and a mix of just like a scrum interview after one of the games. I forget which one. And so in that sense, it was, I don't know, it was kind of a combination, maybe a little bit of a different type of story than I would normally do that was, you know, specifically reported out about, you know, quotes and whatever. But when you're the Dallas Morning News, I think it does help in that you have that recognition and Brad Townsend, who I'm on the beat with, has been around the team for decades in one capacity or another. Um, and so when you're working with somebody like that and when you're working alongside somebody, you can I can learn from him to see how he goes about creating original content and how he goes about getting different angles that nobody else is covering. Um, so I'm still kind of a work in progress in that sense and learning exactly how to approach it. but. I think at an outlet like this and with a team like this, it there's definitely opportunity there. You actually, I was just thinking like you're at a, at a weird place in your career because um, I feel like with the change in media, you're doing something that probably wouldn't have happened a bunch of years ago, which is no, <laughs> you're, you got high schools, you have the Dallas Mavericks and most people they cover high schools with the goal of one day down the line. What I really want to do seven years from now is maybe I'll get to start covering the Mavs and then I'll get more Mavs and then blah, blah, blah. What a lot of people find ultimately, I think, is they really miss the days of covering preps. Like, ah, oh, that was so, I didn't realize what I had. And here you are, you have taste of preps, you have taste of Mavs. And I wonder what you enjoy more. Hmm, that is a very good question, Jeff. Um, I think at this point, I mean, I know that 
I haven't hit the point in a career where I could look back and be like, oh yeah, that was, that was the good time. Cause this is my first full-time job out of college. But I think right now I like the challenge of covering the Mavericks because it's something that I'm not comfortable with. I've covered high school football in some capacity, whether it was an intern freelancer or uh, a reporter here for four seasons. And I know that's not nearly <laughs> a lot of seasons at all, but I kind of feel like I know the rhythms of a season and I know how to talk to coaches and I know how to build sources within teams or within, you know, different, different parts of the Texas high school football experience. Um, and so the challenge of the Mavericks of learning the NBA as somebody who grew up in Washington, DC in a very college basketball centric area and family and who, you know, didn't pay, you know, much fervent attention to the NBA before this job. <laughs> um, I like the challenge of trying to, figure out what the heck I'm doing all the time and how to push my work so that I might be able to tell that, okay, I'm not super comfortable writing about this topic, but I'm going to make sure that nobody else can tell that. I had a guy named Alec Lewis on last week and he's the uh, Royals beat writer for the athletic. We were talking about, he, he was not a baseball guy. Like he was not a baseball guy. And we were discussing sort of the, the idea of admitting you don't know everything. And mm -hmm how it's almost like this awkward dance. Like someone says something and you have no idea what the hell they're talking about because you, you know, he, he wasn't a baseball guy. You weren't an NBA woman, you know, like it wasn't your passion. Mm -hmm. um, is it okay to say, can you explain this in more detail to me? I don't really get it. Or is there a worry about sounding uh, uninformed? Oh no, that's like my favorite thing to do is because, <laughs> because if I don't know something, I don't, I mean, in certain situations, you can kind of pretend and then like look it up on Google later on if it's like yeah. a stat or, you know, like a wording that, you know, a coach will like Rick Carlisle will use that. I'm like, I don't know what the heck he's talking about, but I'm going to look it up later. But no, I, I think the worst thing that I could do is pretend like I know everything. And that's just not true. And so if, you know, if it's in the right setting or if it's, you know, in a certain situation, whether it was high school football or whether it was this, like. There's a there's a way you can word it and say, hey, I'm, you know, unfamiliar with this. Can you explain it to me? Or, hey, I don't quite understand what you mean by this. Like, can you help me understand? And the last thing that players or anybody you're covering wants you to do is act like you know what they're talking about and then misuse their words or not write about it intelligently or, you know, things can get out of control then. And so I think they appreciate if you are self-aware enough to say, I don't quite understand, but I would like to understand. Can you help me understand? I do that quite frequently if the situation is correct, because <laughs> I need to understand. Wait, February 11th, 2020, a big day for both of us. Michael Kidd Gilchrist signs with the Dallas Mavericks as a free agent. <laughs> Huge day. <laughs> Huge day. I don't have to tell you. It doesn't matter if he knows who you are. Like, do you, he comes to the Mavericks. Do you have to introduce yourself to him? Do you, when you go up to interview him, do you say who you are? Does it make no difference whatsoever? Yeah, well, I would say probably no difference. I mean, it can't hurt if they do know who you are. And when the Mavs made a couple of trades this year, you know, everybody, myself included, made sure after you're done talking to them in the scrum or whatever, you say your name, whatever, but, you know, who you're with. But do they actually internalize that? I don't know. Um, I think that I'm new enough to the point where most people don't know who I am. It's that's progressed as the season has gone on. but. I'm in year one, not even finished year one. So it's impossible to, you know, really make sure that everybody knows who I am, especially in the role that I'm in where I'm not 
constantly with the team on the road in every home game, that kind of thing. Um, I think I've gotten along just fine, but I think if I had time to talk with a player one-on-one more often, or, you know, there's just, the setting is not conducive to that all the time at home, which is where 99% of my coverage happens. So I don't think that I'm at a strict disadvantage if people don't know who I am, because for most of the reporters there, they don't know people's names would be my guess, but the familiarity can't hurt. What are you doing during a game? You're watching a Mavs game. What are you doing? Uh, it depends if I'm writing the game or not, but trying to tweet, trying to keep up. I think the NBA, not that I've covered every sport in depth for a while, the NBA has got to be one of the hardest things to cover. And that's not just as somebody who doesn't, who hadn't followed the NBA as a lifelong fan, you know, for the past 24 years. Like it, the the game goes constantly. And so most of the time, honestly, I'm just trying to figure out like what the heck's going on. Cause the only time the game really stops is when there's some sort of controversy happening and you have to figure out what the controversy is. So a lot of it is, you know, trying to follow along with stats, trying to follow along with Twitter, trying to tweet some intelligent things every now and then, and, you know, come up with what all is going on in the game. I don't think that's anything especially different than what other people might do, but I guess my head's still in the, or I'm still new enough that my head kind of just races the whole time. And then I just spit out some words. You graduated from Maryland two years ago, right? 2000, or well, almost three years ago, 2017, correct? My gosh. Yeah. You're making me feel old. Oh my God. First of all, <laughs> I am required to say that I'm 47 years old. So don't give me that crap. I'm joking. That's <laughs> yeah, all right. So coming into journalism nowadays, like you, you've obviously had a really nice rise. You're at a really good place. You're covering a big team. It's really cool. Everything's worked out great. Like, can people coming out of college still think of themselves as strictly writers? Like, is it okay to be a kid in college who's a really, really good writer who really knows how to cover a team, who really knows how to interview someone and just come out with writing skills? Can you survive in this business being that person in 2020? Mm, I don't know. Well, I guess that was kind of me coming out of college, but I tried to be diverse in the experiences I sought out in college in terms of I took an internship at a radio station one summer, did an internship at a TV station, even though I knew in the back of my head, like I wanted to be a reporter, uh, you know, a, a writer, a reporter, but it was nice to be able to kind of rule those things out. And it was nice to know that, you know, I did not really like radio. And so that's not something that I knew I wanted to pursue as an actual job. It's something that I enjoy going on different segments every now and then if I get invited, that kind of thing. And I knew that I really did have an interest in TV. It wasn't something that I wanted to focus on my entire four years in college. But when the situations present itself now, doing TV through the Dallas Morning News partnership with the NBC station here, or other opportunities, it's something that I knew I wanted to jump on. So I would say it's okay to come out of school knowing you want to be a writer and a reporter. But it's important to know that you have to kind of diversify your experience to make yourself marketable. That makes sense because I applied to many newspapers out of school and didn't get an offer for a job that was going to be a good fit for me professionally and personally for probably nine months, I think it was. And so it's it's not so simple as oh, I know I want to be a writer. I'm going to come out of school and I'm going to get a job being a writer. You know, it has to a lot of things have to fall into place. And in the process, you have to kind of make yourself as diverse as possible, even if you know what you want to focus on. How many jobs did you apply to out of college? Oof. Well, I don't think I can 
count because I would probably forget all of them that I got rejected. Give me an ish from. number. Ish. I would say this is not all the ones that I applied to. Is there was plenty I applied to and never heard back from, or you know, it just didn't happen. But I would say there was probably between like six and eight jobs that I got deep into the interview process for and didn't end up getting, which I would have taken them if I had been offered them um, before I got. Did you have a crushing? Offered. Did you have a crushing one? Like one where you were like, oh my I gosh, know all this of stuff. them, <laughs> all of them, because you know, like all you want to do. I forget who I was telling this to recently, but in college, you move up and you get things not handed to you, but by virtue of graduation, you start at the student newspaper. It I started at the gymnastics beat and you just continually move up until you get where you want to go. And then it's graduation. And you've just kind of been on this conveyor belt throughout college where you work hard, but you're going to move up regardless of how hard you work or how good you are. And then you get spit out in the real world. and you just want to keep achieving like you have been, but that doesn't always work because there's people that want to keep achieving and that have had good college experiences as well that are competing for the same jobs and same opportunities. So that was uh, wasn't a very fun year, but it was it was a uh, good in hindsight. <laughs> yeah, I would say you cannot really complain about how your career has done. Oh, absolutely not. But in that in that that nine months where you know you feel like you've been working hard and you feel like you're really close to these jobs and they just, you know, you, you can kind of, I don't know, I guess it's, it's tough to explain, but you, I look back now and I'm like, Oh, of course it didn't work out. Like I needed to, you know, kind of be taught how difficult it is to, and, you know, gain a new appreciation for if I want to work at this, I really, really have to work at this and, you know, appreciate what I'm doing. But in college, it's kind of hard to develop that perspective until you get spit out and have to figure it out for yourself. And there's not such a, and you know a set track that you can follow let me ask you a final question i'm looking at the clip about you again ravens fan <laughs> of the week november 27 2013 and it said um a question was asked by a reporter named jordan bartell how did you celebrate the super bowl win and your answer was i didn't stop screaming and dancing until i went to bed late that night wore some sort of ravens gear every day at least to the, the rest of february and skipped school to be inside the stadium for the parade that tuesday but i still smile every day when i think about them winning it all so I guess I haven't really stopped celebrating yet. And here's my question for you. <laughs> Seven years later, working in the business, covering games, being in the locker rooms, seeing guys at their worst and seeing, mm -hmm. I'm, you've, you've certainly by now seen a, a, your asshole or two of professional athletes and you've seen <laughs> guys burp and fart and scratch, you know, like everything bad. You know, mm -hmm. every, you've seen the behind the scenes, you've seen the wizard behind the scenes. Can you be in our position doing this job? And still have the enthusiasm, joy, bliss, glee, giddiness about sports that 18-year-old Callie Kaplan of Clarksville, Maryland had in 2013. Oh, gosh. Yeah, 18-year-old Callie Kaplan was pretty naive. Um, <laughs> I think, like, to a degree, you can kind of. It, it's just very different. Like, this past fall and winter, when the Ravens were extremely good, and I certainly didn't expect them to be that good, you know, it is fun to be able to call my parents and, you know, get excited about the game, talk to my brother and sister, and we're all excited about Lamar Jackson and whatnot. But it comes, it, it's different. It's not so, it doesn't dominate my life anymore. Like, do I like to see the Ravens do well? Yes. But if they don't do well, you know, it doesn't really do much for me. I mean, you're like upset and then you just move on because you got like more work to do and you kind of understand, at least I understand now that, 
you know, it is, it's just a job and it is, it's fun to follow, but it doesn't need to, or it doesn't dominate my life so much. My life goes on the same, whether they had beaten the Titans or whether they had won the Super Bowl this year. So I think the pure bliss of post Super Bowl Cali has probably, I've probably stopped celebrating since then, but <laughs> it's, it's still nice to see them do well. It just, you know, my entire mood for the entire week is not dictated on whether the Ravens won or lost. Um, has this job lived up to what you wanted? Has this, uh, I guess this profession lived up to what you wanted? Yes, I think so. I mean, I guess I didn't really know what I would picture it as, if that makes sense. I, mm -hmm. I don't know if I ever pictured a specific thing of my doing in my career that I was like, I'm going to do that. But no, I mean, it's fun. I get to watch sports and more importantly, I get to tell stories that I think are interesting and that I know, you know, there's an audience for. And so I think that part of it is, you know, I don't know. I don't know the right word for it, but it's lived up to whatever I guess I thought it would be because I enjoy working hard and I enjoy getting to ask questions and be curious as my job. Yeah. I just want to say, if you were asking me back in 2001, what would six-year-old Callie Kaplan become? I would have to look at this article, Seeking a Unifying Identity for Jews, and assume, because you're wearing a talus and you're receiving a Torah from your Hebrew school teacher, Farah Fakhari, uh, that you would be a rabbi. And it's a little disappointing, I'm not going to lie. I thought you'd be a, a woman of the cloth. I don't quite know where things went wrong, but uh, <laughs> I don't think I can go back and change it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Callie, seriously, I usually appreciate you doing this. And um, I forget, I love I love your approach to this job. I love your writing. I think it's great. I think you're going to have a, whatever it means, like a big future in the in the game of journalism. So thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me on. Very cool. <laughs> I want to thank today's guest, Callie Kaplan, for joining me on Two Writers Slim and Yang. You can follow Callie on Twitter at Callie Kaplan and read her work in the Dallas Morning News. One can listen to Two Writers Sling and Yang on pretty much every podcast medium, and views are always appreciated. Music is by the dazzling MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.